We do want to throw out a disclaimer this week. This week's show contains graphic violence against women, rape, and torture. Please be advised. You're listening to Killer, and this is case number nine, the case of the Toolbox Killers. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. you at any time ever use an ice pick? No, sir. You struck Miss Lamp with a sledgehammer. Do you recall the sledgehammer which was introduced? Yes, sir, I recall. Uh, was that true? No, sir. Lawrence Bittaker, with an IQ of 138, dragged high school girls into his van then murdered them by twisting a coat hanger around their throat with a pair of pliers. 
when his tape recording of one murder was played in court, people rushed outside and vomited. They touched Miss Ledford on the breast with the cold metal pliers. And if you listen to the tape, you'll hear those pliers being replaced in the toolbox a few seconds later. Oh, what, what did you touch her on the breast for with a pair of pliers? To shock her with the cold metal. They touched Miss Ledford on the breast with the cold metal pliers. And if you listen to the tape, you'll hear those pliers being replaced in the toolbox a few seconds later. Oh, what, what did you touch her on the breast for with a pair of pliers? To shock her with the cold metal. They touched Miss Ledford on the breast with the cold metal pliers. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris crossed paths in 1977 at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California. The pair were both sent there for previously committed crimes. Each of them had a long rap sheet prior to meeting each other and becoming friends. First, we're going to talk about Norris's criminal background. Norris had a long rap sheet for sexually motivated crimes. In November of 1969, he was arrested and charged with rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. In one instance, Norris attempted to force his way into the car of a lone woman. In February of 1970, he tried to trick a woman and get her to let him in her home. The woman refused and Norris attempted to break in, but was arrested before he could make his way into the home. While he was on bail for these crimes, he attacked a San Diego State University student striking her in the back of the head repeatedly with a rock. Once the woman was down on her knees, he beat her head against a sidewalk. Norris was sentenced to five years at the Atascadero State Hospital, where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. He was released with five years probation in 1975, being declared an individual who was of no further damage to others. Three months after his release, he approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach. He asked her if she wanted a ride on his motorcycle and she declined. Norris parked his motorcycle, then grabbed her scarf and began choking her with it. He told her he was going to rape her and dragged her into some nearby bushes. She did not resist the rape. She reported the rape to police, but they were unable to track down the perpetrator. One month after the attack, the victim saw his motorcycle and wrote down his license plate number. Norris was arrested and convicted for the attack. This is where he was sentenced to the California men's colony. Lawrence Bittaker began life by being placed in an orphanage by his biological parents. He was an unwanted child from the start and was eventually adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker as an infant. At the age of 12, Bittaker was arrested for shoplifting. He continued the trend for the next several years, getting caught for petty, theft-like crimes. Bittaker was known to have a high IQ, but dropped out of high school and turned to committing crimes. Within his first year after dropping out, he was arrested for car theft, a hit-and-run, and evading arrest. He was imprisoned in the California Youth Authority until he was 18. Once he was released, he discovered his adopted parents had disowned him and moved away. He never saw them again. Bittaker had several offenses after he was released from the California Youth Authority. August 1959, he was sentenced to 18 months for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. In May 1961, he was sentenced to 15 years for robbery in Los Angeles. He was released in 1963 after serving only two years. In October of 1964, he was imprisoned on a parole violation. In 1966, he was evaluated by multiple psychologists determining he was borderline psychopath, highly manipulative, and unable to acknowledge the consequence of his actions. He was prescribed antipsychotic medications, and a year later, he was released. In July of 1967, he was arrested and convicted of theft 
and leaving the scene of an accident and sentenced to five years, but released on April of 1970. March 1971, he was arrested for burglary and sentenced six months to 15 years for repeated parole violations, although he was released three years later. In 1974, Bittaker was arrested for attempted murder after he stabbed a supermarket employee who accused him of stealing. He was reported to have stolen a steak, and the employee followed him out into the parking lot and confronted Bittaker, calmly asking him if he forgot to pay. Bittaker responded by stabbing him in the chest. The employee named Gary Louie survived the stabbing, barely, and Bittaker was convicted of a lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon and was sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California. Bittaker and Norris are pretty bad dudes <clears throat> right off the rip. I mean, Bittaker's rap sheet is quite long. I mean, I just blew through that really quick, but it started in August of 1959. Actually, probably a little bit before that. He was actually only 12 when it started. But, you know, his main list there starts in August of 1959 and goes up through 1974. And for whatever reason, these guys keep getting caught for stuff, and then they just get released within a couple of years. And uh, and they just repeat the repeat the process over again. Yeah, and the, the rap sheet that you read off for Bittaker... I mean, it's it's fairly consistent until you hit 1974. He's he's mostly arrested for you know theft and robbery, things of that nature. And some of the information that I read on Bittaker that 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 attempted murder in 1974, where he was you know stealing food from that supermarket employee, to me that that's kind of a turning point for him because it says that he wheeled it around when that employee approached him and stabbed him in the chest. And the way that I read it, it was almost like it was unintentional, but he, he had already been evaluated as having, you know, possible, you know, psychotic side to him, highly manipulative or whatever. But I wonder if that incidental stabbing, if it was truly incidental, I mean, that's just what I read. If that set him down this path that, you know, we're going to get into here later in the story about how things we see the continual escalation from a young age to this point. But then this is like a breaking point, I think for at least from what I'm reading in the information. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to tell, you know, from that lens, but it is interesting to think about if that, that incident is then what kind of transforms him into who he becomes later. The, The thing with it is I didn't, I didn't take away the, unintentional nature of that crime like you you did um i mean it, it wasn't premeditated but it was definitely intentional once he was confronted but i feel like it has to do with kind of to your point this um this boiling up of all the stuff that had happened i mean they'd been in trouble well he had been in trouble many many times and he keeps getting released i mean you're talking from 1959 to 1971 so i mean He's been, well, I'm sorry, 1974. So he's been, you know, in and out of prison, theft, robbery, those kinds of things. Who knows what circles he's running in? Clearly not good ones because he keeps getting in trouble. I don't I don't know how premeditated that any of this was in terms of the stabbing, but I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of what you were saying is, you know, once he did do this, you know, it may have unleashed something in him he'd been holding back on for a long time. Yeah, that's just that's just a correlation that I that I drew reading through this, and when we hit that point, and specifically, it struck a chord with me when I read about the the shoplifting incident where he nearly killed the the grocery store employee. They said that he was within an inch of losing his life because he had stabbed him. I mean, literally just under the heart. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna mention that. Yeah, his <laughs> he did almost murder that guy, and in a way, it almost would have been better if he did. No, I totally agree. When we get further into the story, yeah, (laughs) 
for what we know now after researching these guys, yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah, and uh, that kind of sounds callous, but when you hear the events that unfold after this, if you're not familiar with this case, um, it's pretty graphic. So anyway, I say let's get into it. Yeah, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the friendship that forms between uh, Bittaker and Norris, and then um, unfold things from there. Bittaker and Norris's friendship began slowly a year after Norris arrived at the California men's colony. Norris and Bittaker became friendly after Norris taught Bittaker how to make jewelry. Bittaker also saved Norris from multiple attacks by other inmates. By 1978, they formed a closer friendship and discovered they both shared a common interest in sexual violence. Norris shared with Bittaker his affinity for watching frightened women, hence his long rap sheet with sexual violence. Bittaker shared with Norris that he had never raped anyone, but that if he did, he would kill them as not to leave any witnesses. Norris and Bittaker frequently discussed plans to assault and murder teenage girls once they were free. They formed a plan where they would kidnap, rape, and murder a girl from the ages of 13 to 19. They both agreed that upon their release, they would meet up again. Bittaker was released on October 15, 1978 and returned to L.A. He found a job as a machinist and made close to $1,000 per week. Three months after Bittaker, on January 15, 1979, Norris was released and moved in with his mother in Redondo Beach, California. He found employment as an electrician in Compton. By late February, the two had made contact and began to meet up at a hotel and started planning their attacks again. They decided in order to fulfill their plan, they needed a van. They purchased a silver 1977 GMC cargo van. I warned you guys about these vans, which they named it Murder Mac. Following the purchase of the van, February through June of 1979, the pair would pick up over 20 hitchhikers. They never assaulted any of the victims, rather. They were trying to work on a ruse that would help them lure girls into the Murder Mac voluntarily. In addition to testing their ruse, they also tried to find the perfect secluded location to, to execute on their plan. In late April 1979, they found a fire road located in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bittaker broke the lock that was on the gate and replaced it with his own. Well, we have a van, people. I tell you about these vans. You better be watching these people in these vans. There's just something wrong about you if you have one of these things. And uh, so they buy this van, and then they name it the Murder Mac. Like, how fucking sick are these people? They haven't even done anything yet. They're already naming it Murder Mac. (laughs) Yeah, they, they take their plans to the fullest extent. I mean, they have the vehicle. They nickname the vehicle. They find the location. They replace a lock on a gate to an access road that now they only have access to because they can, you know, come and go as they please since they've replaced that lock. So it's crazy the detail that they're putting into this plan. Yeah, and the really, the sadistic thing is like they started this in in their prison or whatever while they were in prison together and then like continued to even like think about it after the fact and actually follow through on it. Like, you know how many times you talk to people and you just kind of like, yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be, that'd be great. And then you have literally no intentions of actually doing it. <laughs> and you just try and say things to just brush people off or kind of ignore them a little bit. And then with no intention of actually carrying out whatever you're talking about. It's just more because you're there in that moment and you're really just kind of passing time. Right. But they, from, from what we read there, they, they really formed a bond. And some of the other information I had read too was it, it almost sounded like Bitteker he wasn't necessarily in segregation when he was locked up, but they say from the accounts that I read that Norris could possibly be his, the first friend that this dude has ever had, like, you know, a close personal friendship type relationship. So, 
you know, once they bonded in prison and like we just discussed there, it carried on past that. And it sounds like both of these guys got pretty decent jobs out of prison for being arrested and locked up and having so much trouble. They fall into these, you know, at least from what we have gathered, they fall into some pretty decent careers or whatever. They obviously, they had no aspiration to, you know, have a normal life and work uh, a 40 hour a week job, but it's, it's crazy how these stories twist and turn. Yeah, I know it. You hear in the trailer, um, Bittaker was alleged to have an IQ of 138. You know, honestly, I don't even know what the IQ scale is. Do you know what it is? Like, what's it range from? I mean, he's he's said to have a high IQ, but I don't even know where it tops out at. I don't either. I'd ha- I would have to look it up. Well, good thing for Google, huh? Well, while you're looking that up, when I was putting that trailer together and listening to different audio, they actually had a warden from one of the prisons that said that they gave... Bittaker, the the federal test to be basically somebody that worked at the prison, like a prison guard, the federal test for that that program. And I don't know why they decided to let him take that test. I think that they realized at that point or they had evaluated him and they're like, dude, this guy is actually pretty smart. I don't know what tipped him off to that. But they said after he completed that test that at that point in time, he scored higher on that test than anybody in the history of that test on a federal level. Yeah, I heard that too. That was quite crazy. And while you were talking, I was not paying attention to you, and I was reading Google. <laughs> Just kidding. I was actually listening to you. But the, uh, the the ranges, it goes like this. So 69 and below is extremely low. 70 to 79 is borderline. I'm not sure what borderline means, but it's borderline. 80 to 89 is low average. 90 to 109 is average. 109 to 119 is high average. 120 to 129 is superior. 130 and above is very superior. So I don't know what it actually tops out at, but over 130 and you're basically genius territory. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I'm thinking I probably fall into the um, the 69 and below range somewhere. <laughs> well, I was just getting ready to say, I think with this information, you and I need to take the IQ test and report back where we're at. So everybody can get a <laughs> real true feel next week for right where we land on this thing. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> we we might have to change the show the, the names of our characters on the show again, <laughs> based on our IQ. We could do that. Yeah. We could do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Can you actually take a real IQ test without it? You know, being um, I don't know, being believable with it being believable online, or are they all kind of like hokey? Yeah, I don't know. For for those who who are. In, in the Midwest, and I don't know if Cracker Barrel is a, a nationwide chain. <laughs> That's the only IQ test I've ever taken. You get the little triangle with the pegboard, and then how many ever pegs you have left, you can gauge your IQ's test. So I'm I'm usually not worried about taking an IQ test at Cracker Barrel. I usually got some sausage gravy to take care of. You're pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... I don't know if any of you guys, sorry to derail here, but um, <laughs> what's that game called? Is it the the peg game? I don't know. Oh, man. Um, you know exactly what I'm talking about, though. I No, I, that's my reference to you is actually from the, I think it's actually off of the game itself. There's a, all right, so there's like this little triangle shape and there's like all these holes drilled in it, you know, and it gets wider with all the triangles, right? So you start at the top with one hole, that's a very point, and then 
two, three, four, five, you know, all the way down to, I don't know how many rows there are, maybe like seven or eight rows. And the very top one, or really you can pick any of them, but you leave one hole empty and the rest are filled with these pegs. And you have to jump the pegs and keep jumping them. As you jump over one peg to an empty hole, you remove the peg that you jumped over. And so essentially you're doing like a process of elimination with these pegs and you keep jumping over each peg and then you get down to however many you have left till you can't make any moves. And Cracker Barrel has this game on like every table at the, at the, at the restaurant while you're sitting there. And there's like a, a range for however many pegs you leave left. It like tells you how smart you are. And the, it has like these funny sayings on it for however many you leave. And I'm trying to find <laughs> real quick what it says. Um, I can't find it. Hang on. <laughs> Someone has a solution video on YouTube. I think it was like, hold on, let me look this up real quick. It's leave only one, you're a genius. Leave two, and you're pretty smart. Leave three, and you're just plain dumb. Leave four, and you're just plain ignoramus. <laughs> oh my god. So, I pegged you there for a uh, a leave two guy. Okay. I, I think uh, we, we went completely off the rails with this Cracker Barrel and IQ discussion, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna digress, but I want to leave one last comment. If you go to Cracker Barrel... You better bring some hand sanitizer because you're infinitely dumb if you play that game and then start eating your food because every snot-nosed booger-picking kid that's ever came through that store has pulled the pegs out of that board, and I guarantee you it's not clean. So that's what I want to leave you with with the Cracker Barrel IQ test. I would agree. Um, I've witnessed that, and I've witnessed a few kids lick the salt shaker on the table, so be advised. Don't eat the salt. (laughs) (laughs) anyway okay yeah so back to the serious nature of this um we're gonna get into the serious part of this here coming up so um as you uh as you get through this case it gets pretty intense like craig said so you know be advised as we go through this next section here it gets pretty graphic so we're going to talk about how their plan unfolds and eventually turns into murder On June 24th, 1979, after the murder Mac had its finishing touches installed, a bed, tools, clothes, a cooler, they headed off to the beach area in Redondo Beach, California. They left around 11 a.m., drank beer, smoked pot, and flirted with girls. It was around 7.45 p.m. that the pair came upon a young blonde-haired girl walking down the street. There's a cute little blonde, Norris said. Norris and Bideker tried luring Lucinda into their van, but she refused doing all the right things you teach your young children to do. Bittaker and Norris drove their van up the street a little ways and parked it in a driveway. Norris opened the door and waited for Lucinda to walk by. As she, as she passed, he hopped out of the van and said a few words to her, grabbing her and pulling her into the van. Once she was inside, the pair turned the radio up full blast to drown out her screams and drove off. As they drove off, Norris bound her arms and legs, gagged her with duct tape, They headed for the San Gabriel Mountains. After she was abducted, Lucinda Schaefer stopped screaming. She realized her situation and calmed down. According to Bittaker, she displayed a magnificent magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Once they were in their spot, Norris and Bittaker talked about who would go first. It was decided that Norris would go first, so Bittaker left to take a walk while Norris raped Lucinda. Bittaker returned, and he raped her while Norris also left. They took turns multiple times, and during Norris's second time, Lucinda asked him if he intended to kill her. He replied no. Lucinda pleaded with them that if they did intend to kill her, would they at least let her pray first. There are conflicting reports as to exactly what happened next. 
The story goes that they argued over who should kill her. They both claim that each of them argued that the other should kill her. It ended up that Norris would attempt to strangle her. After about 45 seconds, he couldn't take it any longer and became disturbed and looked in her eyes and went to the front of the van and vomited. Bittaker strangled her until she collapsed. She began convulsing on the ground and he opened up the toolbox and used, and using pliers and a metal coat hanger, he wrapped it around her neck and strangled her until she stopped convulsing. She was not allowed to pray. The pair took her body and threw it into a canyon in the mountains. Two weeks after the murder of Lucinda, the toolbox killers, or just tools, approached 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. She was hitchhiking. As they approached her, so did another vehicle. She accepted a ride from the other vehicle, in which the pair decided to follow the vehicle for a while. She was dropped off in Redondo Beach. This time, Norris hid in the back of the van, and Bittaker fooled her into thinking he was alone. He convinced her to enter the van and grab a drink from the cooler in the back. She accepted and began headed, heading to the back for the cooler, where Norris was waiting. He tried to grab her, and she began to fight intensely. Norris eventually subdued her and gagged and bound her. They took the murder back to their spot again in the mountains, but this time they went to a slightly different location. Once there, she was raped twice by Bittaker and once by Norris. During the second rape by Bittaker, Norris thought he saw headlights coming. Bittaker covered her mouth and dragged her into the bushes nearby. Norris searched unsuccessfully for the vehicle. They then moved to a different location, forcing Andrea to walk up the hill naked, then perform oral sex on them. This time, the pair decided to take pictures of the woman and forced her to pose for them. They drove to a third location, again forcing Hall to walk naked. Norris left to go buy some beer. When he returned, he saw two new Polaroids taken, where Andrea appeared to be, in Norris's words, in sheer terror. Bittaker told Norris that he had told Andrea she was going to be killed and to give him as many reasons as she could as to why she should live. Then he shoved an ice pick into her ear and into her brain. He then flipped her over and shoved it into the other side of her ear. He stomped on the ice pick, breaking the handle, and then strangled her to be sure she was dead. Finally, he threw her body off the cliff. On September 3rd, 1979, Bittaker and Norris came across two girls, Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp. The girls had been hitchhiking, hitchhiking down the Pacific Coast Highway and were resting at a bus stop. Norris and Bittaker approached the girls and offered them a ride, which they accepted. They were offered and accepted marijuana. They thought they were being driven to the beach, but noticed they were headed for the mountains. The girls began to argue about where they were going, and eventually Lamp tried to escape. As she attempted to open the side door, Norris hit her in the back of the head with a bag of lead weights. She was unconscious after the blow, so Norris moved over to Gilliam and bound and gagged her. As he was in the middle of gagging Gilliam, Lamp regained consciousness and again attempted to flee. Bittaker noticed a struggle in the back and he stopped the van. He punched Gilliam in the face and helped Norris get the girls bound and gagged. I believe here, um, when this happens, <laughs> I think there's a bunch of witnesses around. And when she gets out, I think she gets out of the van briefly and he hits her in the head and then yells to the witnesses that she was having a bad LSD trip and then throws her in the back of the van. Just something I wanted to call out. I'm pretty sure that's where this happens. I was going to say, that's interesting that, oh, she's just tripping. Don't worry about it. Okay, on with your day. Yeah, don't worry while I, while I sock this girl in the face and just throw her in the back of the van. No big deal. <laughs> she's just tripping on drugs. I'm going to beat her ass real quick and throw her back in here. Yeah, perfectly acceptable. Yeah. If I saw that, I'd be like, hey, that's a good idea. That guy, he knows how to keep his women in line. <laughs> Insane. <laughs> I mean, people are ridiculous. <laughs> Can you not? I mean, I, I can't get over that. Anyhow, we'll continue on. The girls were kept captive for close to two days and were repeatedly raped, tortured, bound, and gagged. During this attack, Bittaker and Norris took turns sleeping next to their victims. 
They also had forced them to take pornographic pictures, and in one instance, Bittaker photographed himself with Gilliam, both nude and clothed. During the first three rapes of Gilliam, he recorded himself raping her, forcing her to pretend she was his cousin and encouraging her to express her pain. Bittaker claimed to have buried the tape in a cemetery somewhere, but it has never been found. It was also reported that Bittaker tortured Gilliam by stabbing her breasts with an ice pick and ripping off her nipple with pliers. After almost two days of captivity, the girls were murdered. Norris is said to have suggested Gillian be killed quickly since she was the most cooperative. Norris responded, No, they only die once anyway. Gillian was killed with an ice pick through the ear and strangulation. After Bittaker killed Gillian, he forced Lamp out of the van. Bittaker shouted at her, You wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin. He then struck her in the back of the head with a sledgehammer. He strangled her until he believed she was dead, but she opened her eyes. Norris then continued bludgeoning her with... Her Wabedeker strangled her to death. The bodies of both girls were thrown over an embankment into the chaparral. It was Halloween night, 1979. Bittaker and Norris approached Shirley Ledford as she was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party near L.A. She accepted a ride from the pair and was offered marijuana when she entered the van. She refused. This time, they went to a secluded street where Norris drew a knife, then bound and gagged her. Bittaker and Norris traded places, so Bittaker was in back of the van as, as Norris drove. Bittaker tormented Shirley in the back of the van as Norris drove around for over an hour. He slapped and mocked her and also beat her with his fist as he screamed at her to say something. Bittaker continued to torment Shirley, asking her, what's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Finally, she responded by saying, no, don't touch me. Bittaker then started striking her with a hammer and beating her breast with his fist. He also tortured her with pliers in between raping her and sodomizing her. All of this is captured on a tape that Bittaker used to record this encounter. Norris entered the rear of the van, encouraging Shirley to scream, as well as saying, Go ahead and scream, or I'll make you scream. To which Shirley responded by saying, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Then she let loose several high-pitched screams as Norris encouraged her to continue until he made her stop. Norris grabbed a sledgehammer. She screamed, Oh no, as he struck her in the left elbow. She told him he broke her elbow and pleaded not to be hit again. He hit her 25 more times in the elbow before stopping and asking her, what are you sniveling about? After about two hours of captivity, Norris strangled her with a coat hanger. She didn't react much to the strangulation and died with her eyes open. Bittaker decided it would be a good idea to discard the body on a random person's lawn to gauge the media reaction. They dropped her body in a bed of ivy on a random lawn in Sunland. Shirley's body was found the next morning by a jogger. The autopsy showed that in addition to sexual viol violation, she died of strangulation. She received extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breast, and left elbow. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn partly because Bittaker inserted pliers into her body. Her left hand had a puncture wound, and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. Bittaker would later claim that the tape recording was no more than mere evidence of a threesome and that she was asking to be killed. Okay, so we've covered, you know, several of these these murders. There's five victims at this point, and they are just brutal. Um, these guys are like the lowest of the low and just enjoy the sheer panic and love this. Like when, when women are screaming for their lives, like that's what they're getting off on. And I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. And the Ledford case that that we just described and everything that happened to her, th this all of this information is documented very thoroughly, and I think that's a direct result of the tape recording that that was produced during you know all of these 
you know, just, just heinous things that happened to this girl. And actually I was listening through audio and it, you hear bits and pieces of that. Just a, just a brief scream from the courtroom when you hear people running in the trailer. And it, I actually read that the tape of this crime is still used by FBI agents today to, to desensitize them to the, just the horror of how horrific some of these crimes are. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't come across the actual tape because just the reaction, just what I've read about it, it's, I've, I've seen and heard, and and you even told me that there's been reports of like people having PTSD after hearing this thing. It's just completely insane. Yeah. And you know, I've heard of the tape's existence as well. Um, I never sought it out. I don't care to listen to that. If I would have come across it just in research, I probably would have listened um, I'll be completely honest. I didn't come across it and I didn't seek it out. So I never, I never really intended to listen to it or anything, but if I did come across it, I probably would have just out of curiosity because I've heard a lot of hype around it. And, um, I've also, you know, I've heard some of the similar things that you said, you know, people just, they listen to this tape and it just changes you. And I, I believe that, um, one of the prosecutors, and we'll talk about the, the trial and sentencing here in a minute, but one of the prosecutors said that they had to play this tape in court because you needed to know what these guys were doing. Like you, you needed to feel for these victims. And he said that like a part of it, just like it touches a part of your soul. Like it just, it takes, takes something out of you almost, you know? And, uh, he breaks down crying. I believe at one point when being interviewed about why he chose to play the tapes. Yeah. And the diagnosis of Bideker being, you know, psychotic, this happened early on in prison. They've known this all along. And, what you don't see, obviously, because that's an audio trailer we played at the beginning, is if you go out there and seek Lawrence Bittaker's confession, it's only a minute long. You see the actual clip of him in court, you know, saying exactly what you heard in the trailer. But you can tell by just looking at that guy's face as he's describing what he's doing and just the absolute zero effect of him describing pulling a cold pair of pliers out of the toolbox and touching her on the breast to get the shock to the system to see, I don't know at that point to see if she's even still alive or responding to any sensory stuff. Dude is just 100% legit fucking nuts. You can see it on his face. You can hear it in his voice. And he describes that stuff. It just as calm, cool and collected as anything. Yeah. And that's, you know, they just, they describe him as just completely unremorseful for anything. Like he doesn't, he doesn't care. And I, I think I saw, I'm not a hundred percent on this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So I, I believe I saw somewhere where someone wrote him a letter and he responded back and signed his name as Pliers Bittaker. So he's actually not only the fact that he's a psychopath and enjoys what he did, but he's proud of that moniker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, you do hear about this from time to time with these kinds of people who are so sadistic. They, they get off on this. This is what their notoriety is from. And, you know, they don't feel anything from it like it just doesn't matter to them that they killed somebody i mean i can't imagine not being able to empathize with somebody enough to not you know want to kill them like i don't know about you but even like killing like small animals or like nuisance pests and stuff and like there's always like a tiny bit of me that feels a little bit bad about it i think the only thing i don't feel bad about when i kill it's bees and spiders like those are the only things I don't feel like feel bad about but like like I had a mouse in my shed and I trapped it and took it and dumped it off somewhere like you know the mouse isn't trying to be hurtful if it was in my house I would kill it it was out in my shed and it was like you know it's not trying to hurt anything or anyone it, it's just trying to be warm right yeah and uh you, you know what I mean like and, and don't get me wrong 
I am a carnivore. I eat meat. I know that the animals die. I actually go to a local farm and have animals that are, you know, freshly slaughtered in my freezer in the basement. You know, like I'm not like that bad or anything, but you know, I still, there's, it's a, I guess the point I'm making is there's like a recognition of life lost and, and doing it to an animal for your own preservation is one thing. And I think that's what we're kind of meant to do. Um, but then when you do it to another human being and you don't feel anything, like I feel it for an animal that I like, it's part of my preservation and the way that I live. And you know what I mean? And then just to like, and, and not to feel that for a person, like, you know, like you're not even, you're not supposed to kill other people. And then like to not even feel anything. That's just, it's, it's weird. I can't relate to that at all. Yeah. It's zero empathy and zero compassion for a living thing or living person. Just like you described that it, it's completely polar opposite of the way a normal person should think or operate. And that's why I'm saying when you watch that, just that one minute, look, I could only find one minute of it. What, what I played in the trailer of the actual video footage of him during the confession. I would love to have more of that courtroom confession because that, that one minute confirms to me that this guy is just completely disconnected from reality and the way a normal compassionate person, just like what you described should act. This guy, there's nothing there. And I think you could have you could have seen that throughout the trial and throughout his confession if we could have seen more of the footage, but just that one minute you can see that, that he's just, there's nothing there. Yeah, it's just empty. And it's weird because you know there's more people in the world like that. You know, he's not the first, he's not the last. And it's scary. <laughs> you know, it's really scary. Yeah. And I, I mentioned, I was going to say, I mentioned the PTSD thing too. And just what you described about, you know, having that weird feeling of having to kill something, even though it's not necessary for your survival or for you to maintain, you know, a healthy existence. The the PTSD thing resonates with me because you think about these people that serve in the military and they get put into a situation where it's a kill or be killed. And I think the biggest player in that PTSD is they cannot disconnect that compassion. They had to kill somebody to survive, to maintain and move on. But they they don't accept it. They can't get past what they had to do at that point in time. And that's just what the 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 whole thing that plays, you know, into their mental makeup from that point forward with the PTSD thing. There is no PTSD with Lawrence Bittaker. The guy is just he's <laughs> if there ever was pure evil, I think this guy is a perfect example of it. We're we're gonna talk about pure evil, I'm sure, in many more cases, but this guy is a prime example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a good break into talking um, a little bit about the investigation, the trial, and the sentencing. So um, because of the nature of this case and the evidence that they had in it, I chose to kind of roll this up into a more of a summary than really diving into the nitty-gritty details of the investigation, the trial, and sentencing pieces because, uh, quite honestly, I think that the details about the the five murdered are you know, enough, like you don't need to rehash, you're basically rehashing that again. And I, I think we already covered that quite well. So, you know, I, I'd say let's talk about the, the investigation, the trial and the sentencing right here. In November of 1979, Norris became reacquainted with a friend named Jimmy Dalton, a former inmate at the California men's colony. Norris told him about the things he and Bittaker had been doing over the last five months, including the details about Shirley Ledford. Dalton consulted his attorney after hearing this and reported the pair to authorities. After an investigation into Dalton's claims, authorities began surveilling Norris. They caught him dealing marijuana, and the dominoes began falling from there. The evidence mounted against Bittaker and Norris, 
Authorities recovered several Polaroids, the tools in Bittaker's van, jewelry belonging to the victims, in addition to the torture tape of Shirley Ledford. The case was open and shut, but the one thing to note was that during the trial, the prosecution played the tape of Ledford's torture. Many jurors left the room and broke down crying. Bittaker was sentenced to death and is still on death row to this day, while Norris was sentenced to life in prison with the ability for parole in 2010. In 2009, Norris was denied parole for an additional 10 years. So when you go back and look at the investigation and trial, I mean, there's definitely more detail in there than what we provided. But, you know, again, it's, it's just going through the same thing. And essentially the key here is that Norris, you hear in the very first time that they murder somebody, Norris tries to strangle that woman and he can't do it. He gets a few seconds into it and then he looks in her eyes and just that look in her eyes just creeped him out and he just stops and he goes and pukes in front of the van. And then he goes and confides in the sky, Jimmy Dalton. So Norris clearly has some of that empathy, some of that regret and remorse. Like you can just tell. Um, he tries to convince Bittaker to let take it easy on one of the girls and kill her quickly. Um, you know, and there were also time, excuse me, times reported um, where he would be talking to one of the girls as they were assaulting them, and he would reassure them that you know, hey, everything was going to be okay. Um, in one instance, he wrote down his like name and phone number and told the girl he'd buy her a moped so that she wouldn't have to hitchhike anymore. And then um, I think there was another instance where he um, he does something very similar. He writes down his name and address and stuff and, you know, basically telling the girl, like, it's going to be cool. We're going to let you go. Like, and here's some stuff. So you shut up and be quiet. Meanwhile, he does know that Bittaker's going to probably kill these girls, but he just he he can't he can't do it. Like he gets off on the fear. He doesn't want to kill him. Right. Just those points you made right there are the only things I can think of which even gave him a chance of being considered for parole at any point in time. Not that I say that he should have had that opportunity, and I'm glad he's, he got an additional 10 years. I honestly don't think he'll ever get out just due to the nature of what happened. But I'm kind of baffled as to why Bittaker's still on death row. I, I would think by this point in time you're out of appeals and the time's up other than the fact that he's in California. And historically, from from things you see in the media, they're a little bit softer on the death penalty. Not to dig on anybody in California, but that's just my take. Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't understand why. I, I really don't understand why he's still not put down. Um, you know, it's crazy. And, um, you know, the one thing in in the wake of all of this, uh, one of the detectives, Paul Bynum, uh, he was the chief investigator of the murders. He committed suicide in December of 1987. Um, he left a 10-page suicide note, and he specifically referred to the murders committed by Bittaker and Norris as haunting him and of his fear that they might get released from prison. And I thought that was quite shocking. And um, Stephen Kay, who was the prosecutor at Bittaker's trial, he uh, still considers it the, the worst case that he ever had to prosecute. And um, he still remains consistent that uh, Bittaker deserves to be executed more than any other inmate in California's death row. And, you know, he said that for a few years afterwards, he just, he kept having recurring nightmares where he would be rushing to Bittaker's van and he would be trying to prevent the girls from being harmed, but he would always get there too late. That just proves my point. Why is this guy still alive? California needs to get their shit together, get those three syringes ready, and get it done. I, ha right. I hate to sound I mean, callous, but, I mean, this somebody that worked in law enforcement 
kill themselves for fear that he's going to get out of prison and just traumatize him to the point of writing a 10-page letter and, and taking his own life. Yeah, I think they're directly responsible for that guy's life, too, if you want my honest opinion. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. And, um, you know, meanwhile, Bittaker sits on death row and he's filed more than 40 frivolous lawsuits over s- stupid shit. And some of it's like he was served a broken cookie and crushed sandwiches by the prison cafeteria. <laughs> and, I mean, like, this guy gets to sit there. Even though he's locked up, he's alive, you know? And he can sit there and file frivolous lawsuits and just be a a disgusting pile of trash, you know, and, and not feel remorse for anything that he did. He, he was, he was declared a vexatious litigant in 1993. And, um, because of that, he's no longer allowed to file lawsuits without the express written permission of an attorney or a judge, but that's, you know, that's his life. He sits in prison and wastes his intelligence on frivolous lawsuits and, not being sorry for anything that he did. I don't know why he's still alive to this day. I mean, this happened in the 70s, and here we are, you know, it's almost 2020, and he's still alive. There's a side of me that thinks that the California justice system should be remorseful that guys like this are still alive. I I know that there's lots of controversy over the death sentence, the capital punishment as a whole, but this is a clear-cut case of where somebody should not (laughs) <laughs> should not be alive today still after all these years. No, I mean, you have, you actually have the physical evidence in this case of, of them committing these crimes. Like you have Polaroid pictures, you've got the audio of the, of the, uh, of Shirley being tortured. And, um, you know, like, so you know, it happened and you know, it was these two guys, there's no doubt about it. And so like, you know, from, from that point forward, it's, I don't understand why they remain alive in prison. Uh, I mean, Norris, I guess I, I can understand sparing him the death penalty just because he was pretty cooperative. It sounds like, and gave a lot of details, which forced Bittaker to give a lot of detail, but I don't, I don't think you do that so that they can just go sit and rot in prison. Like, you know, Bittaker needs to be sent, sent, like put down. I mean, this dude's a, just a disgusting piece of trash. And here he is, you know, this tool in prison over here. Um, you know, one half of the toolbox killers, he's definitely a tool. I will say that again. And, um, you know, he's just, he's, he's garbage. He's a garbage human. And he's just sitting there wasting people's time, you know, and just countless lives he affected, you know, it's just, it's disgusting. I I can't agree more. I I don't know what else to say on this, on this case. I I think it's something that he may never be executed. I mean, I think it's just going to languish on forever and it's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, hopefully he gets put down sooner than later or just dies. I mean, he's just trash. One interesting thing to me, though, usually guys, especially ones with such, you know, horrifying crimes or whatever, when they're put into the prison system and they're more high profile like that, we we hear it with other cases. I'm surprised he hasn't been killed in prison by other inmates for fear that he may try to do something to them or he's come along somebody that, you know, is in prison, it's had something, you know, equally as awful happen to somebody that they're related to. And they seek vengeance on somebody that could perpetrate somebody, a female and do those types of things. You know, we know Dahmer was killed in prison. And just here recently, was it uh, Whitey Bulger? As soon as he got moved to a new Supermax prison, he's dead that day. There, You know, there's people on the inside that despise these people, whether it's due to the high profile nature of the case or simply what they did or how they were 
connected emotionally to the crimes that that person committed. I'm surprised he's lived that long in prison. And that's not to say that he doesn't live in some type of segregation to keep that from happening. But it's interesting to think that he can still, that, that the system hasn't taken him out from the inside, I guess is what I'm saying. I think he is segregated in prison, I'm pretty sure. I feel like I remember reading that at one point in time, but don't quote me on that. But I, I think he he is like kept away from most of the prisoners because of that, because he is he's a high profile inmate, and I think that um, they kind of protected him, I guess. But you know, if it were me, let him have their prison justice and move on. He was supposed to die on December twenty ninth, nineteen eighty nine, and here we are. It's twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, it's almost thirty years. Later. Nearly thirty years. Yeah, that they've had to protect him from the fate that he inflicted upon other people while he's in prison. It's just, it's asinine to me. Yeah, it's it's disgusting. Um, that being said, um, you know, I think we're going to wrap this week's episode. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would like to contribute to the show financially to help us, um, we'd appreciate that. You can do that on our website, www.killerpod.net, or you can hit up our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash killerpodcasts. And in addition to Patreon page, don't forget to follow us on social media at all the normal platforms. We can be found on Twitter at killer underscore podcasts, on Instagram at killer podcasts, Facebook is facebook.com forward slash killer podcast and if you just want to shoot us an email we can be reached at killerpodcast at gmail.com that's it for this case stay safe